I want you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You've heard me say one too many times, uh, for sure, a thousand too many times, that we like to preach through books of the Bible here, taking a Clint Eastwood approach, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want to, by the way, thank a few of you who said, hey, can we get back to going through books of the Bible? And I'm, I'm grateful for that exhortation. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I would say that in today's passage, there is much of what we would probably quantify and qualify as ugly. So for one, the sin that Paul is calling out, the sexual immorality in the church, it's quite ugly, right? It's quite messy. But from another perspective, many people would say, wow, that's really ugly of a church to put somebody out because of their sin. So it's kind of ugly on different levels. I was reading a commentary by Stephen um, on this text, very helpful commentary. Um, and he said that many people um, are quite comfortable with self-discipline, right? We're okay with that. We think it's actually a noble thing. You discipline yourself to achieve an academic goal, um, an athletic goal, some vocational goal, to get a promotion, to lose some weight, to get in better shape, on and on and on. We laud people who have a lot of self-discipline, and self-discipline is a gift. But Um goes on to say in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 5 that we are far less comfortable with discipline being imposed upon us from an outside force. Although, in certain veins, we accept it as just part of life. So, for instance, we accept that there's standards of conduct that will be upheld at a school or at a place of employment or on an athletic team. We, we, we kind of accept that. We're not crazy about that, but we accept that. But he went on to say that we are super uncomfortable and think it's way over the top, the idea of a church ever imposing discipline on somebody. After all, aren't churches supposed to be places of grace? Right, we would think and say. Um, this doesn't seem very Christ-like. Isn't the church supposed to be a hospitable for sinners? Hospital for sinners, right? That's kind of what we think. Now, the reality is, indeed, grace has something to say about church discipline. And what we're going to see is church discipline is actually an expression of great grace. And yes, 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 the church is to be a hospital for sinners, but it's not to be a hospice for sinners. Medicating us with a little bit of religion, somebody continues unchecked on the path of spiritual and perhaps eternal ruin. I came across an article about objections that people commonly have to church discipline by David Schrock. And I want to just, by way of introduction, quickly go through the five of them. One objection people often have to church discipline is they will say, that's none of my business. And the author of that article points out, that sounds a lot like um, Cain's sarcastic response to God when he asked him where he's able. What does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? Um, yeah, you actually are. <laughs> That's the whole point. In the family of God, according to Galatians 6, 1 and 2, 
We are not only to bear one another's burdens, the text says, we're actually to lovingly confront each other when we're in unrepentant sin. So, yeah, it is our business. The second objection is this. I just don't want to cause a problem. I don't want to cause a problem. And perhaps on the surface level, that sounds, you know, uh, humble and respectable. But imagine a physician examining somebody riddled with cancer. And that prescription says to that patient, you have a clean bill of health because this doctor, she didn't want to cause a problem. Would that be good? Or say a building inspector comes in and sees that the main beam is riddled with termite damage, but not wanting to cause a problem, the building inspector says, everything's just fine. See, no, we, we, we actually would see um, that we're not called to ignore problems, right? Or gloss over problems, or pretend problems don't exist. Rather, because they already do exist, we are then to lovingly address them. So the objection, I don't want to cause a problem, doesn't hold water. The third objection is this. I'm not supposed to judge others. And inevitably, they bring to bear the eisegesis from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? Now, I just said that's eisegesis, which is a fancy way of saying you're reading into the text rather than out of the text. It misses the point of Matthew 7. The point of Matthew 7 is as you call out other people's sins, don't be a hypocrite. Make sure you're looking at your own sin first and foremost. In fact, look at your own sin first and foremost so that you then can winsomely and effectively and non-hypocritically help others as they battle sin. So the objection, I'm not to judge others, holds no water. The fourth objection is this. People say, I, am, I can't address somebody's sin when that sin wasn't against me. So why would I say anything about it? And they would go to Matthew 18. You know that passage, if your brother sins against you, go to him. If he doesn't listen, bring somebody with you, and then all the way to the church, right? And they would dial in on those words, if your brother sins against you. And they say, he hasn't sinned against me, therefore it's really none of my business. Well, the reality is, the earliest manuscripts don't have the against you in Matthew 18. But even if the earliest and original autographs do have those two words, we have other Bible, like Jude 22 and 23 and James 5, that tells us that if we have a brother or sister who is er erring and going off the path and straying, that we need to, what, go after them. J Jude says, snatch them from the fire. That doesn't hold water. But the fifth and final objection is this, and I, I, just, I think this is the worst objection of all. It's the worst one of all and the most common of all. And it goes like this. I just want to be loving. And the idea is then, the implication is, right, that if you were to address sin in somebody's life, even have to discipline them to the point of what Paul's prescribing here, you would not be loving. But according to Scripture, nothing could be farther from the truth. I took pains, even at the end of a long sermon last week, to read through Hebrews 12, 11 through 16. And the point of Hebrews 12, 11 through 16 is that one of the proofs that you actually are a son or daughter of the living God is that the Father will come after you and chasten you. In other words, discipline is an expression of love, not an expression 
of hate. And in fact, then, you would have to say not being willing to discipline somebody may actually be an expression of hate rather than an expression of love. Now, the goal of this, yes, very ugly process, it is an ugly process, is the beautiful result of restoration. And that is why, in the end, this chapter is a chapter of grace. Church discipline or church pursuit is an act of grace. And so I simply want to talk to you this morning from 1 Corinthians 5 on this, this main idea, the grace of church discipline. Y'all with me? All right, so here we go. We're just going to walk the text. The context is this, verse 1, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, specifically for a man has his father's wife. I think we understand what he's saying right there. Basically, what was going down is this. There was a sexually immoral man in the church. He was, uh, to be specific, sleeping with his stepmother. He was sleeping with his father's wife, which almost sounds like something out of a reality TV show, right? Um, and, it, and it very could well be commentators surmise that in, in that era, um, there was often a big age difference between a husband and a wife, like massive, still is in certain parts of the world. What's more, some say perhaps uh, his biological mom had passed and his dad had remarried. But it's, it's likely that this man's stepmom was closer to age in him than to his father. And likely a very attractive woman. And he was sleeping with her. Now that is exactly um, condemned in Deuteronomy 27.20, which says explicitly, a man shall not sleep with his father's wife, his stepmother. But I don't think we need a Deuteronomy 27.20 to know that, right? Because I think we know Jesus made it very clear that sexual intimacy is reserved for a man and a woman who are committed in holy matrimony. Outside of that, you are not called to have physical intimacy with anybody else. But the funny thing is about this, you saw this, this expression. It wasn't just that Christians should be ashamed of that, as they should, the scripture I just gave you. Even the pagans were ashamed of that. Did you see that? It says, of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. So it's not just like this wasn't cool within the church, within the realms of Christianity. Even the pagans weren't cool with that flavor of immorality, which is quite a statement. Because if you, as you've heard me give you the background context for Corinth, Corinth was hardly a hotbed of purity. It wasn't exactly Prudeville. It was rampant, deviant sexuality. And yet even among that group of people, this was, this was unheard of. Probably not because of some moral thing, probably out of a shame thing. It would have been very shameful for a father to have a son sleeping with his wife. But nonetheless, it was very shameful. And it seems they were doing nothing about it, the church at Corinth. They, they weren't even doing anything about it. Why do you think they were not dealing with that man sleeping with his stepmother? Why do you think? Let's just conjecture out loud for a second. Well, why do you think? 
I'm sorry? Yeah, I don't want to be judgmental. Exactly. I don't want to be judgmental. And maybe, maybe the guy was a big giver too, right? I don't want that to stop coming. Or maybe he was just really influential. And if we do something, there'll be a domino effect. People will be mad at us. Same thing today. People, sometimes it's, it, churches will not deal with a persistently unrepentant sinner because maybe that person gives a lot of money or is highly influential and they just don't want to tip, you know, rock, rock the boat, tip the apple cart. And Paul is very clear that they tolerated his behavior, a behavior not even tolerated among the pagans. Verse 2, worse yet. They not only tolerated his behavior, they were actually kind of proud of it. Crazy, yes, but that's what it says. Verse 2, and you are what? Arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? <laughs> so they weren't just tolerant. They were celebratory about this behavior. Because it could have been like this. They could have at least been like, we don't have the backbone to do anything about this guy because he's influential or gives a lot of money or whatever. But we, we still on the side are mourning that. No, Paul says you're not even mourning it. You're arrogant. You're celebrating it. And the tense of the phrase, and you are arrogant, is a tense indicating. Is this, this is popping a lot, isn't it? Would it be better for me to take it off or what do you think? Okay, cool. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, the tense of the, uh, the expression, arrogant, puffed up, indicated this. It's, it's kind of fascinating. That when they first heard of his sin, they blew up. They became puffed up like a balloon. And as they heard about that sin, they continued to get puffed up and arrogant. Now, as you, as you kind of dive into that, I don't think they were so much puffed up about the act of incense, incest, they, they, they were now family, right, sleeping with the stepmom. I don't think they were so much puffed up and arrogant about that. Here's what I think they were arrogant about. They were arrogant. They were puffed up about their tolerance of that sin, about their being okay with that sin. And I can imagine them thinking, if not saying out loud, just like you said, sister, we're not judgmental like the church down the street. Who are we to judge? We sin too. We don't want to be unloving. It's none of our business. And all those objections that I gave by way of introduction, they were quite arrogant about that. In verse 6, Paul calls them out. He says flatly, you're boasting. Verse 6, is not good. And when you think about it, this is really not just a chapter about a church needing to discipline an unrepentant member. This is a chapter disciplining the church for not doing that. Paul says, ought you not to mourn? He's using plural. You're arrogant. Your boasting, plural, is not good. And then in verse 9, Paul makes it clear this was obviously an ongoing thing. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with people. And that, um, that there was 1 Corinthians, there was a previous letter to the to church at Corinth. It wasn't inspired. It wasn't canonical. It was just a letter he wrote. He wrote lots of letters that weren't Bible. And he apparently, in an earlier piece of correspondence, knew about this and addressed this, and yet they continued to celebrate their 
tolerance of sin. Now that's the context. Does that make sense? Now we're going to ask, who is to receive this kind of a discipline? What does this discipline even look like? And then here, here's, here's kind of the blood and guts and, and, and I think really the good stuff. Why that has to be done as an act of grace. And then just a few qualifiers. So who is it that needs to be, whether the church of Corinth or any biblical church today, that has to receive this measure of church discipline? And I'll answer like this. A member who persists in sin without repentance. A church member persists in unrepented sin. They've dug their heels in. They're not listening to admonitions. Nope, 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 nope. I'm right. You're wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in verse 11, Paul says, I now am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty, and then it lists the sins. Now, this is the end of a long, long process. Matthew 18 gives us information about that. Titus 3.10 gives us information. This text and many others. And if you were here at a family business meeting we had a couple of months ago, in painstaking detail, I went through all those verses, okay? So I want to reiterate what, we, what he's talking about here is the culmination of a long process. Now, let me just talk to you as, as your pastor. When a church gets to that point, quite often, hopefully not, uh, most people are not aware of what's going on. They shouldn't be, right? You deal with people's sins confidentially, right? Expanding the scope according to Matthew 18, according to how they respond or don't respond. Um, so sometimes people say, I can't believe this is happening. This is out of the blue. Well, it's out of the blue for you, but it wasn't out of the blue for the people walking through the process. And here he talks about people who persist in unrepentant sin, and he expands the sin category from the sexually immoral in verse 11 to uh, those who persist in greed, persist in idolatry, persist in reviling, persist in being a drunkard or a swindler and on and on. Obviously, it's not an all-exclusive list. But I just want to reiterate, this is, as I laid out in that church family meeting, a, the end of a culmination of a long process. Months. Sometimes, in many cases, a few years. But it is, who, who is the people the person that needs to be disciplined in this way, who is it? A church member who persists in sin without repentance, okay, in unrepentant sin. Now, what? What is to be done? This is kind of the hardcore part right here. And so I'm basically going to get myself out of the way and then just point you to the very text of the words of the living God. And you're going to see five different expressions that make it pretty clear what's to be done. I just want to let Scripture speak. If you can put your eyes on verse 2, the last phrase says, let him who has done this be what? What's the word there? Be removed. Hey, some eyes are right here. Be removed. You see that? Hope you have your Bibles. Hope you're looking at your Bible because <laughs> it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what the Word of God has to say. Let him who has done this be what? removed, removed. It's pretty clear, right? You go to verse 5, it says, second of all, you are to do what? Deliver this man to Satan. You're like, what in the world? 
is that all about? We're going to get there in just a second. But right now we see the word remove, and we see the word deliver, and then we get to verse 7. What's the very first word of verse 7? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So, in other words, you remove this person, right? You deliver that person to Satan. I'll explain that. You cleanse them from the church. Verse 9 says you are not to associate with. Verse 11 again repeats that. I'm writing you not to associate with anyone. And he even adds these words, not even to eat with such a one. So I just want to, I want to rehearse. Remove, Paul's words. Deliver to Satan, Paul's words. Cleanse, Paul's words. Not associate with Paul's words. Not associate with Paul's words. And finally, not even eat with one. Paul's words are God's words. The last expression is verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Purge. So you see what we have right there, right? Remove, deliver, not associate with, not associate meet with, and even purge. Man, that's some strong stuff, isn't it? Like, that's really strong. But is this what the chapter says? And the answer, obviously, is yes. It's right before us in, in black and white. Stephen Ohm said in his commentary, again, very helpful, when a church gets to this point, we're not just saying, you know, I don't think what you're doing is such a great idea. No, we're not saying that. What we're saying is, I fear for your soul if you don't turn back and change your ways. I fear for your soul if you don't have a change of heart. So it's some really, really strong stuff. So the who is, who is this done on? Church members who persist in unrepentant sin. What's to be done? Remove, expel, all that. And now we get to the why. Are you all with me still? I don't think anybody's walked out. I hope you don't. Why? There's two reasons, and I just want to say they're laden with grace. They really me with grace. I hope we have a heart to see this is an act of grace. The first reason is for the good of the person, namely their restoration. And in some cases, their actual salvation. You see this in verses 3 through 5. And I'm not going to unpack all the phrases in verses 3 and 4, but basically Paul is saying, I'm really serious about what I'm saying. Would you please listen to me? Would you have ears to hear what I'm saying? Look what he says. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And, it, and, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you come together, and my spirit is present, you know what you ought to do. With the power of our Lord Jesus, he's the one that calls the shot. You are, verse 5, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, what in the world does that mean? Deliver a person to Satan. Like, isn't that the last thing we should ever do? So what's he talking about? I think it's, I think it's actually pretty simple when he says why it is we hand him over to Satan. Here's the idea. That person is, has dug their heels in, right? They've, they're quite loyal to their master, which at that time is their sin, whatever that sin is, right? They are, they are committed to sin, the sin that they're saying isn't that bad, they don't want to turn from. They're committed to self. They're committed to Satan. They're like, uh-uh, I'm going to do my thing. You got it wrong. This is just fine. They are committed to that, right? They have their heels 
quite dug in on that. And so the idea is simply this. If they will not, at the end, repent after all those overtures, all those exhortations, all those warnings, all those meals, all those cups of coffee, all of that, if they won't do that, if they're committed to the way, let's hand them over to Satan in hopes that Satan will eat them away so much, God does use Satan as a parasite, that they'll finally come to their senses and say, what in the world am I doing? And that's why you have this expression, so that, it's a purpose clause, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And the idea is this, that the sin that they think is so sweet, and sin, is, let's be honest, sin tastes good, right? That's the whole thing. Tin, sin doesn't taste like cod liver oil, right? Two spoons you got to get down, right? It's like ice cream. Raise ice cream. It tastes good, right? But sin always takes you farther than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it's just trying to get you to the end of that process a whole lot quicker ahead of your eternal ruin. So the idea is the sin that is so sweet, you will come to see how bitter it is. I remember uh, I read a Puritan who lived 400 years ago writing about this process. He says, you know, in, in the darkness of our sin, we're sitting there just stroking what we think is a beautiful brooch or pendant or necklace. And when the light goes on, you saw what was actually, you thought a beautiful uh, pendant or a brooch was actually a cockroach that you've been stroking. And the idea is that will happen. That the person will come to say, what am I thinking? What am I doing? Why am I living this way? Why am I willing to throw all this away? And most of all, I can't do this. I belong to Jesus. And through all of that pain, and there will be a lot of pain, after Satan does his parasitical thing, eating away, they will come to true repentance. And they will show that while they did swim around in the slop, they really belong to the Savior. That while they really did for a season run after their own thing in rebellion, they really are among the redeemed. So church discipline at this stage is not merely kicking people out of church. It is a God-given grace to awaken them to a path, if unchecked, will lead them to ruin. Instead, it, so it, it seeks to bring them to restoration, right? And in some cases, their actual salvation. And therefore, for the believer who's going through this, it is for their ultimate good. It is an expression of God's grace and a great means of grace. So the first reason, according to verses 3 through 6, this is done, if it has to be, is for the good of the person, the restoration. Is that clear? Now there's a second reason, and that's found in verses 6 through 8. And in this case, it's for the good of the church. It's holiness and the glory of God and all of that that goes into what the church is before the world. Verse 6, he said, as I pointed out a few minutes ago, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Your boasting's not good. In other words, this tolerating and celebrating of your not being judgmental and all that, keeping you from dealing with that sin, that, that had to have an, a devastating impact on the church. And we know was what happened in Corinth. And so when he talks about leaven, here, leaven is like yeast. 
You can't take a ball of dough and put yeast in the little corner of it and not expect that it's not going to permeate the whole lump of dough, right? We love watching these cooking shows at our house. And who's the guy, Andrew Zimmerman, who travels all over and goes to all these cool places. And one, they had something uh, in China. It was donkey sandwiches, which, by the way, it actually looked delicious. They said it tastes like pastrami. But forget the meat in that. The bread, what this guy did to make these sandwiches that people would line up uh, by the tens to, to order, this little sidewalk kiosk, is he would take bread from the day before that had yeast in it and just take a little piece of that and put that in the fresh dough, and that would be sufficient yeast to go through all of it, and he would be able to make his buns for that day's sandwich. That's what sin does. Sin spreads. I mean, not that particular flavor of sin, but an acceptance, a, a comfort level with it. It's the rotten apple in the barrel thing, right? If you don't take a rotten apple out of a barrel of good apples, pretty soon you got a whole lot more rotten apples. That's all he's saying. Does that make sense? And so he goes on to say, verse 7, it actually, I think, reads like a riddle. But look, read verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Huh? It's kind of like a riddle, isn't it? Let, let me read it again. Cleanse out the old leaven, leaven of sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What is going on there? Basically this. This is the constant call of sanctification in the New Testament. Paul is simply saying, be, church, who you already are in God's eyes, holy. It's a, it's a call to say, I want you to live out your new identity and who I've made you to be through the cross of my son, Jesus Christ. It's, it's what Paul's going to do. We'll see this next week. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is Paul's, Paul's constant call to sanctification. By the way, if you're struggling with sin, don't start with your sin, start with your Savior. Who you are in Christ. And that's what he's doing. Be who you are in Christ. You're not being consistent. And a church that won't kick out a person who is persistently sticking to their sin in unrepentant fashion against all these attempts to get him or her to turn back. It, a church who won't kick out such a person is actually kicking out a person. You know who they're kicking out? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember that quote I read in the family meeting a few weeks back? When church discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Churches that don't practice discipline undermine their own preaching. For instance, they might condemn adultery from the pulpit, but if they don't remove the known adulterer from their membership, they tell the church that adultery is not such a big thing after all. You can have Jesus and adultery, both. And you can go on and on, heresy, slander, all the rest. Further, such a church will soon find that it looks just like the world. Its evangelistic witness will be compromised. Why join that church when they look just like me? Only they're hypocritical about it. And that's why Paul goes on to say in the latter part of verse 7, seemingly out of nowhere, but it's not at all. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been 
sacrificed. And instantaneously, boom, the imagery would be evoked in the mind and the ears and the eyes of a listener of a lamb being slaughtered, its blood being smeared to the doorpost, and the death angel passing over and sparing their firstborn because there was blood up on the doorpost. What's he referring to here? In other words, the marquee Old Testament deliverance, the Red Sea deal, the Passover deal, right? When God, through the blood of that slaughtered lamb, delivered the Egyptians from the oppression and brutality and slavery of the Egyptians. And that Old Testament marquee deliverance points to the marquee deliverance, right? The deliverance of the ages of all of Scripture, Jesus Christ, who through his blood delivers his people, us, from the oppression and brutality and slavery of sin. And that is the message of the Bible. That is the thing that he is going to when he is dealing with this unrepentant member. John in chapter 1, verse 29, with laser focus, puts our eyes on this lamb when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Years later, this grizzled, old, exiled prophet will say, I see, on the island of Patmos, will say, I see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then he witnesses one of the greatest worship songs ever, Worthy are you, O Lord, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed people from every nation and tribe and kindred and tongue and made us a kingdom of priests. That's Revelation chapter 5. And Peter himself will say, Don't you know that you were redeemed from your futile way of living, inherited by your, from your fathers and your mothers, not by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, he says, without spot or blemish. And I can unpack that more and more, but what he is saying is, listen, family, listen, church. By the blood of Christ, the marquee deliverance of the ages, you, two things have happened. You've been washed clean, and you've been set free. Now let's walk that out. Be who you are. And then in verse 8, he says this. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, there's some debate, frankly, about when he says the festival, is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Or is he just talking about new life in Christ altogether? Um, there's some debate about that. But I just want to focus on these words. He doesn't say with the unleavened bread of perfection and truth, right? So nobody's saying, Paul isn't saying, you've got to have perfect people. Of course not, right? That's why we need the cross. But you need to have repentant people who are laying hold of the cross. And that is then sincerity and truth. Who is this to be done to? Church members who persist in unrepentance. What does it mean? We ran all those verbs. Why are we to do this? for the good of the person, the, the, the restoration, or perhaps their authentic salvation, and for the good of the church that it maintains its witness. Now, we're going to end with a couple of qualifications here because this, could, this stuff can really be abused in one of two directions. So qualification one is this. This is done with people under the stage of, under, let, let me re read it as I wrote it. We do it with people under the stage of, 
of church discipline, but we neither shun them, okay? This is not about shunning. The cult shun. Your pastor mumbles to you. They don't even know your name. No, that's, that's, we don't do that. We neither shun, but on the other hand, we don't act like everything's hunky-dory and just okay. Rather, what's prescribed is purposeful interaction. See how he lays it out in the closing paragraph? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to get out of the world. You would need to leave the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside, Paul says. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, when this is done, we neither shun people, but neither do we act like everything's just fine, like nothing ever happened. Rather, there's purposeful interaction. And I lay hold of these phrases, not associate with, you saw that twice, right? And not even eat with. Now, again, there's, there's some, some debate here. Some would say not eat with simply means don't let them take the Lord's table. They're barred from the table, which somebody under this level of church discipline is. It's probably more than that, though, I think. I would fall on the side of the saying it's more than that because twice he says not associate with, right? Not a, don't, don't be intertwined with them. Don't be tangled up with them is, is the idea with that verb. At any rate, this is how it plays out. Somebody is, is, is under that point of church pursuit, church discipline, and they're not responding yet, and let's say you get a text or you get a phone call. Hey, what's going on? Hey, great to hear from you. How you doing? Oh, man, you know, blessed and highly favored. People love to lay your religious quotes on their rebellion, right? I'm good. Hey, person says, you want to go shoot hoop? Hey, I got some uh, tickets to the Red Wing game. I got tickets to a concert. Let's go get something to eat. How would you respond? I'm sorry, I can't do that. But if you want to talk about making your way back to God and getting right with God in the church, I will drop everything right now. And we can go get a cup of coffee or whatever. That's immaterial. But we're going to talk about that. Would such a person be welcome to Welcome to attend a service? Yes or no? Of course they would. We don't have any bouncers, you know. Well, no, of course they would. We want them under the sound of the gospel. Again, in most cases, somebody won't do that until they've been restored, right? But if they were, again, neither shun, act like everything's, nothing's ever happened, purposeful interaction. And again, I want to remind you of what Stephen Um said. When we get to this point, we're not just saying, hey, I don't think that's a great idea that you're doing, sis. We're actually saying, I fear for your soul if you don't change your ways. And given the stakes being so high, we do a disservice if we soft pedal this, right? We just do. Again, I want to read something that I read at the family meeting. Family, if you totally shun people, you're being unloving. I think we can all see that, right? But if you're casual and act like everything is the same, you may think you are being loving, but you're actually being unloving. And that's harder to see. You are not working for that person's restoration. You're actually working against it. 
you're not working with the church. You're actually working against it. You're not working for the glory of God. You're actually working against it. It's pretty strong stuff, right? But the, but the other part about this is this, we've got to be clear, this does not at all, and I, I hope we get this, doesn't apply to lost people who are just deep in sin, right? It, 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 who make no confession of Christ. So, you know, wherever your circle of influence, work, ball team, it doesn't apply. Doesn't Paul make that clear? He, he, he's saying, don't not hang out with people because, you know, he's in an Whatever is going on, lost is going to do lost, right? The world's going to do the world. In fact, he says, don't judge. You don't need to judge the world. Why? The world's already condemned. Actually, so often we flip the script. We get real judgmental of people outside the church, and we give a pass to sin inside the church, right? He says, no, we've got, we got to do it the opposite way. We've got to do it the opposite way. So we're not, we're not to go around judging people. We're to be honest. We have conversations, but we ultimately need not just talk about their specific sin, but we've got to get to the cross where the new birth happens, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're to build relationships across which we can share the good news of the gospel. God is the one who's going to judge. We don't judge the world. And even Paul, he was a pretty strong-willed dude, right? The scripture lets us know that he had a lot of friends that weren't even believers, in Acts chapter 19, they strike up a riot against him because he's preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And it says the Asiarchs, some of the Asiarchs were who were his friends, the text says, and Asiarchs were high-ranking rulers, helped save his life, got him away from the throes of the mob that was going to kill him. So again, the clarifications is for a Christian that we do this, we neither shun, nor do we act like everything's just normal. We do what the scripture says. And this does not apply to non-Christians who make no confession of Christ. Now, someone might ask, does this work? Now, I think that is the wrong question. I think the right question is, is it faithful? And yes, it is. A church dealing with a person in persistent unrepentance is itself in unrepentance. And Jesus had something to say that about that to the seven churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But there are some great stories of restoration. And I got to tell you before we sing again. I read about these through a ministry that's been influential in my life. There's a guy named Bob. Bob. Bob was cheating on his wife. He repented, it seemed, when he was caught. He cleaned himself up. But self-cleansing always leads to old ways again. And he reverted back. And he was caught again. This time the elders, because he would not turn, had to run the full process on him culminating in this. And he did what people have done. They threatened lawsuits. How could you do that? Well, you kind of signed, you know, signed on board with the covenant. Um, and they sadly had to remove him from church membership. The road ahead proved very difficult. There was so much brokenness and heartbreak in his life. But finally, between seven and eight years later, he repented and he committed to the path of restoration. And he stayed on that path all the way to sunset. Church discipline was effective. Carde grew up in a tough home. Agnostic background. Loved to debate Christianity with his friends. But through the ministry of a local church's outreach, he was gloriously saved. And there was some big time changes in his life. Unfortunately, 
Cardi began to drift, slowly at first, but then more and more. Before going back to the streets, smoking his weed, angry against all the church's past injustices his friends always reminded him of, even hostile against Christians himself. And it was a sad day when they finally conclusively had to remove him from church membership. He was homeless and he was broken. But you know what the church kept on doing? They kept on pursuing him. Somebody even let them live in his house. They said, we're going to talk to you about the Lord, but you can come live at our house because he's on the street. And we're going to study the Bible with you. We're going we're to call you to repentance. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. He repented and turned back. Some in the church had a concern that they couldn't receive him back because it's just going to be an ongoing cycle. But an ongoing cycle it's not been. It's been five years now since this man has been walking with the Lord daily. Church discipline was effective. Harry started living with his girlfriend in 2011. Friends said, hey, man, you can't do that. You're disobeying Christ. You're defaming the name. And by the way, I hope, I hope you're the kind of friend who can do that with your Christian friends who are going their own way away from the Lord. In a healthy church, this process does not start with the elders. Elders are the last resort. It's church members confronting, admonishing, encouraging one another. And they did that. But finally, the elders had to get involved. They disciplined this young man. He stopped attending because of that. But a few months later, before being restored, he started coming back to church, which was a really cool thing. And then the spirit worked in his heart. He made changes. He repented to God. He expressed sorrow to the congregation. And now for over a decade, he has been an example of the grace of church discipline. All three of them have. So does it work? Well, first of all, is it faithful? Yes, but yes, sometimes it works. Now, I briefly yesterday kind of talked about six or seven people that we've had to discipline through the nine years of Restore Churches, eight to ten years, and when you count the start date of, of Restore's existence. Um, there was a single guy sleeping around who has abandoned the faith completely. There's a woman unfaithful in her marriage to a man she met at work. There's a young man who went into a cult called Black Hebrew Israelite and another man. There's a woman that was unfaithful. There's a man who wrote a heretical book. There's a man who was being divisive. Now, I wish I could say, like, you know, Harry and Cardi and Bob, they have been restored. They haven't yet. But I'm hopeful because their last chapter has not been written. And what's more is I'm thankful by the grace of God that we've been faithful to the God of grace of church discipline. And sometimes it might be seven years, it might be 17 years, it might be seven months. Faithfulness belongs to us. Fruitfulness belongs to the Lord. And I close, and I do close, preachers say that way too often, with this. At the risk of, of sounding a bit forward for anybody hung up on the sideline when it comes to church membership, I want to read to you one more quote by Stephen Hunt. This is what he said. If my relationship to the church is currently where discipline in this way could not happen to me, because I'm not a member, then my relationship to the church is different than the ideal laid out in Scripture. We need to be accountable to a community in which we can receive informal, mutually correcting discipline. Just the everyday stuff, right? And in the worst case scenario, we need people to hold us accountable when we are running off the tracks. Everybody says they want that before they go off the tracks. Few people want it in the moment as they're going off the tracks. 
And so we make that commitment to Christ and his covenant community ahead of time. There is great grace in church discipline. I don't know where this message lands. I guarantee you this is not one of the more fun messages to preach, okay? It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but it has a beautiful goal in mind, restoration.